0: As the children are being dismissed for Children's Church, let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis. Chapter 27 and verse 41. Our goal today is to finish the chapter. Actually, our goal is to learn something. Maybe a byproduct of that will be to finish the chapter. Um, Our message this morning is entitled, The Temporary Consequences of Sin. The Temporary Consequences of Sin. We are in that section of Genesis where God is at work through a man named Jacob. All of these chapters are so important for us because through these men, Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, God is forming a nation, the nation of Israel through which Messiah, Jesus Christ, would one day be born. And Satan doesn't like it, as we'll see in our chapter or our paragraph today. The chapter began with Isaac's intent really to... Bless the wrong son. God had already said in Genesis 25, verse 23, the younger will serve, or the older, rather, will serve the younger. Isaac, for whatever reason, has ignored that, forgotten that, and he is seeking to bless Esau rather than Jacob, the older rather than the younger. Jacob and Rebekah at that point form a conspiracy. They did not wait on the Lord, but they decided to take matters into their own hands. I'm glad we never do stuff like that. And they formed a conspiracy to deceive the old man, so to speak, Isaac, and since his eyesight was dimming to get him to bless Jacob rather than Esau. And then you continue on there to Roman numeral three where the deception happens. Uh, Isaac trusts what he can feel and what differently than what he hears. And we dealt with uh, that as an anatomy of deception, how deception happens. And so now uh, Isaac has been deceived, and he puts the blessing upon Jacob. And then Esau doesn't like it. Esau shows up. Right after the fact, Isaac realizes what he has done. He realizes it, realizes that it's irrevocable. Esau says to Isaac, do you have anything for me? And Isaac says, I do, but it's a different kind of blessing. It's a blessing outside the land of Israel, verses 30 through 40. And now what happens is there is a plot developed by Esau against Jacob out of anger concerning this deception, and this causes a plan for Jacob to flee to Haran. It's sort of a plan that was concocted by, once again, Rebecca and Jacob. So we can kind of divide these this paragraph into the follows. There is the cause for the flee to Haran, And then there is Rebecca's solution, verses 42 through 46. And as you read this, what you'll see is people of God sort of functioning according to what's right in their own eyes. Trying to sort of fulfill God's word, the blessing coming to Jacob rather than Esau in their own power rather than waiting upon the Lord. It really is textbook, uh, an example of what Abram and Sarai did, who later became Abraham and Sarah. Uh, God had promised Sarai and Abraham innumerable descendants coming forth from their own body. And then they, at some point, just reasoned to themselves, after they received that promise in Genesis 15, That God really doesn't know what he's doing. He's taking too long. So here's our program. We're going to help God along by having Abram impregnate Hagar, giving rise to the Ishmaelites, a perennial source of obstacle, being an obstacle and consternation to the nation of Israel to this very day. We get ourselves into a lot of hot water when we try to help God out. And that's what's happening here in this entire chapter via Rebecca and Jacob. So notice this flight now that must place take, now, that now must take place to Haran. And notice the cause of the whole thing. You see it there in verse 41. It says, so Esau, because he had been cheated, Bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near and then I will kill my brother Jacob. This expression here, Esau bearing a grudge, harboring internal animosity to his brother. That is something that we've actually read about before with Cain and Abel. You might recall when we were back in those chapters, probably about 15 years ago, um, it says in Genesis chapter four verses five through eight, this is the first murder in human history. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. so Cain became angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, "Why are you angry?" Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin, this is very important to understand, is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. The first murder in human history. Something that could have been completely and totally avoided had Cain followed God's exhortation a few verses earlier. It's interesting that God says, what's happening in your heart right now, Cain, is sin being personified here, is seeking to control you. And you better control it or it's going to control you. You better get it under control while this is still a heart issue. Because if you don't get it under control now in terms of anger, it's going to reach a point where it can't be controlled and that's going to lead to murder. And, of course, Cain didn't do what he was supposed to do. And he ended up committing the first murder in human history Something that could be controlled if he just got control of his heart. The book of Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it, speaking, reading from the New King James Version, for out of it spring the issues of life. Uh, I had a pastor once when I was in the Dallas area who said private thoughts will eventually lead to public actions. And you think of how many uh, murders have occurred in human history. You think of people on death row. You think of people spending their life behind bars, having been convicted of the crime of murder. And that horrible consequence that they are now experiencing could have been avoided. An innocent life could be spared. If, If the issue of anger just got itself... Under control. One of the biggest murder trials in my lifetime is the O.J. Simpson trial. O.J. Simpson being all of our heroes to a large extent because of his prowess on the athletic field, on the football field. And yet he committed that terrible act. Uh, My own belief, I don't mean to interject myself into every legal and political issue, but I felt that the evidence against him was overwhelming. And you double homicide. And the consequences that he paid in some cases he was able to avoid consequences. In other cases in other cases he's still paying the consequences. And two innocent lives. Um That whole scenario, as horrific as it was, as ugly as it was, could have been avoided if he had simply gotten anger under control before it would subdue and control him. This issue of bearing a grudge, I mean, here it says Esau bore a grudge against Jacob. God actually would speak to that at Mount Sinai. This is a passage that we used a little earlier today in Sunday school. It's found in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19 and verse 18. It says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. But you should love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. A lot of people have the view that it's not not really until you get to the Sermon on the Mount that the Bible starts dealing with issues of the heart. That isn't true. Jesus, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll quote it in just a little bit, gave the fullest treatment of sins of the heart. But the concept of the sins of the heart bearing a grudge, not allowing that spirit of anger and unforgiveness to overwhelm us, and dealing with it at the heart level, that is something that is spoken 1,500 years before the time of Christ in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, at Mount Sinai. Of course, Jesus would take the issue of sins of the heart and give a fuller amplification in the Sermon on the Mount when he would say things like this, in Matthew 5:21 and 22 You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and whoever says to his brother you good for nothing shall be guilty before the supreme court and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. I read something like that and I say, Lord, thank you that I'm clothed with the transferred righteousness of Jesus. And I'm not going to be in that final judgment. Because although perhaps I have not committed physical murder, I have committed murder many times in my heart towards people. And sometimes it will vomit itself out with accusations or inappropriate posts when I could have avoided that by dealing with the heart issue on the front end. The same is true with adultery, by the way. Adultery takes place in the human heart long before anything physical actually happens. Jesus in the same sermon, this is quite a sermon, isn't it? matthew five twenty seven through twenty eight he says you sh- you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already been has already committed adultery with her in his heart see we're so focused on the finale, the actual physical sin, whether it be murder, adultery, whatever Jesus says long before those physical sins take place there are issues of the heart that's what God is saying to Cain sin is crouching at your door you better master it before it masters you get it control get it under control at the heart level Cain of course didn't listen and he ends up committing the first murder in human history by the way this issue of sins of the heart, this is one of the reasons Thomas Jefferson, who was one of the greatest intellects that America has ever had, not a perfect person himself, but certainly a masterful intellect. You just have to read what John F. Kennedy said when he had all of these Nobel laureates in the White House for a meal. He said something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, We haven't seen so much intellect in this dining room since the days of Thomas Jefferson when he dined here alone. That was the tremendous intellectual prowess of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson had made a study of the philosophers of the day. And of all of the philosophers of the day, he put Jesus on the highest shelf. I don't know if Thomas Jefferson was saved. I have a tendency to think that he was. But he has some kind of uh, unorthodox views of the Trinity at different phases of his life. Some phases of his life he seems to get it right. Other phases of his life he seems to get it wrong. Whatever he was, he had a tremendous respect for Jesus Christ. And this was why. He said Jesus dealt with sin at the heart level. This is why America's founding fathers wanted the Bible taught in the schools. Because if you can control people at the heart level, then the metal detectors and all of these other things become unnecessary. When the metal detectors come into the public schools and the Ten Commandments go out of the public schools, We know we're going in the wrong direction. Amen? Notice what Thomas Jefferson said. And I bring this up because the secularists have sort of hijacked Thomas Jefferson. They they make him look like an anti-Christian person, which he was not. He says here in a private letter, My views philosophy, religion, in other words, are the result of a life inquiry and reflection and very different from the anti-Christian system imputed to me by those who know nothing of my opinions. To the corruptions of Christianity, I am indeed imposed, but not to the genuine precepts of Jesus himself. I am a Christian in the only sense in which he, that's Jesus, wish anyone to be sincerely attached to his doctrines in preference to all others. His system of morals, if filled up in the style and spirit of the rich fragments he left us, would be the most perfect and sublime that has ever been taught by man. His moral doctrines were more pure and perfect than those of the most correct of the philosophers gathering all into one family under the bonds of love charity peace common wants and common aids a development of this head will evidence the peculiar superiority of the system of Jesus above all others I love how these guys write I don't think Thomas Jefferson would do well on Twitter where you're only given a few letters or characters to express yourself. He says the precepts of philosophy and of the Hebrew code. In other words, he says this is evidenced in the Sermon on the Mount and also at Mount Sinai. The precepts of philosophy of the Hebrew code laid hold of actions only. He that's Jesus pushed his scrutinies into the heart of man, erected his tribunal in the region of his thoughts, and purified the waters of the fountainhead. That's why Thomas Jefferson was so impressed, having given a lifetime of study to various religious leaders and philosophers. said, Jesus is different. Thomas Jefferson, one of the greatest intellects that's ever lived, says Jesus is different than everybody else. He's different than Plato. He's different than Socrates. Why? Because Jesus took his principles and put them into the heart. Jesus warned you about murder happening in your heart long before physically anything else transpired. Because private thoughts will ultimately lead to public actions. That's why they're is so much scripture about us guarding the mind, guarding the heart, guarding the thought life. Because private thoughts eventually lead to public actions. This is what is brewing in the mind of Esau as his rage is not coming under control, but is going to grow into something as we're going to see much darker. So as a result, Rebecca, who somehow becomes aware of what Esau is plotting to do, develops a solution. I mean, she's trying to obviously protect Jacob. So we have the discovery of what is happening there in verse 42. Verse 42 says, now in the words of her... Elder son Esau were reported to Rebecca. She sent Jacob, or she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself, concerning you by planning to kill you. How did um, Rebecca find out? We don't know. Maybe someone told her. But some way, somehow, she overheard. Someone overheard, gave a report to Rebecca, and here comes Rebecca, verse 42, trying to resolve the problem, to spare Jacob's life. Second part of verse 42, she went and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consulting himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Rebecca apparently summoned Jacob and told him everything that she knew. And what you've just entered into in Scripture, and it's not just played out here, it's played out in many passages of the Bible, is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent conflict. Because there's something at the demonic level much bigger going on here. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this is the first presentation of the gospel after the fall of man, Genesis 3. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall crush him on the, on the heel. Speaking to Satan, there's coming one from the seed of the woman who's going to take your head, Satan, and crush it. This is the coming Messiah, ultimately Jesus Christ. Satan, right here, is put on notice. Satan's agenda, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is to prevent the birth of this Messiah so that he cannot grow up and accomplish his mission through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and then one day the establishment of his kingdom on the earth where the serpent's head is going to be crushed. Satan, in his darkened mind, thinks he can stop God's prophecies from transpiring. And that, therefore, becomes the explanation all the way through the Old Testament of attempt after attempt after attempt by Satan to stop the birth of Jesus. And obviously he wants to take this man, Jacob, and kill him. Because he knows that the Messiah is going to come through Jacob. We will learn that eventually in the book of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17. Where the children of Israel will be brought out of Egyptian bondage, brought to Mount Sinai. And they will be trying to make their way into the land of Canaan. And right there in their path is the Moabites. So Balaam, who doesn't like these Jews coming through his territory, hires excuse me Balak, the king of Moab, hires a prophet named Balaam, a prophet for prophet, so to speak, to curse these Jews. And the problem is, every time Balaam opened his mouth, what came out of his mouth was not a curse, but a what? A blessing. Now, this is going to happen in the book of Numbers 23 and 24, seven times. As you read through those chapters, it will say, he took up his oracle and he said, in other words, Balaam is trying to curse the Jewish people, and out of his mouth pops a blessing. To the frustration of Balak, who is saying, I hired you to curse these people, not to bless them. And finally, Balaam says, well, how can I curse what God loves? But it's the fourth oracle, number four there, that's very interesting because it starts to describe a coming Messiah coming from the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and what's the third one? Jacob. Now we understand why Esau is trying to kill Jacob. I mean, he has his own motive, but there's much, there's a much bigger drama in play here that this Messiah is going to come through Jacob. Numbers 24, verse 17 says, and here's the key part of the oracle, number four, I see him now, but not near. I behold him, but not near a star. Boy, maybe that's why the wise men in Babylon were following a star. By the way, where did Balaam live? He lived in Mesopotamia, Babylon. Babylon where the wise men came from. The wise men, I believe, had some sort of access to this prophecy. Among other prophecies that Daniel had, pinpointing the exact date of the triumphal entry, Daniel, chapter 9, verse 25, had those prophecies where? In Babylon. That's why the wise men are seeking a star at a particular time in history just a shred of biblical data, where God's people, the Jewish people, with a complete canon, complete Old Testament canon, were willfully ignorant. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall go co- forth from Jacob. A scepter shall arise from Israel. Satan knows Bible prophecy much better than most pastors know it yet he thinks he can prevent the birth of this messiah that's why there are attack after attack after attack throughout the old testament and even into the gospels for that matter against the lineage leading to jesus and the birth of the messiah this is why cain kills abel this is why genesis 4 this is why the sons of god were contaminating the genetics of the human race in the pre-fall world to prevent the God-man from being born. This is why uh, Genesis 6, this is why Pharaoh is persecuting Israel, Exodus 1. It's why Joash, the last living Davidic descendant on the earth, had to be hidden in the temple from Athaliah during her rampage second chronicles 22 and 23 this is why haman persecutes israel in the book of esther it's why antiochus epiphanes seeks to persecute israel in the intertestamental period daniel chapter 11 verse 31 right up into the christmas story christmas narratives why herod is persecuting Christ, causing the royal family to flee. Matthew chapter 2. The devil's behind all of it. How do you know that, Pastor? I know that because the book of Revelation explains it to me. Revelation 12, verses 1 through 4 says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed in the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she gave... Let's see, I think I messed up my reading there. And she cried out, there we go, being in labor pain to give birth. And another sign was seen in heaven and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns upon his heads and seven diadems. And his tail swept a third of the stars out of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman that is about to give birth, so that when, when she did give, give birth, he might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a man-child who was to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron, and her child, now speaking of the ascension, later was caught up to God and to his throne. Translation, you've got a dragon and that's Satan. You've got a woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars who is Israel. And if you don't believe that, wait till we get to the Joseph story. It will become clear to you. And Israel is about to give birth to Jesus, and the dragon, who is the devil, doesn't like it, and he's trying to stop the birth of Jesus. That becomes your whole explanation for the Slaying of the Bethlehem innocents. The male innocents in Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2. But Pastor Matthew chapter 2 doesn't mention Satan in the spiritual warfare. That's right, but neither does, but the book of Revelation does. So I'm completely justified in understanding what's happening in Matthew chapter 2 through this angelic conflict. So when you read these words right here about, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. And we know that the Messiah must come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, the fourth oracle of, of uh, Balaam. What you have to understand is this is part of the angelic conflict. It's just intensifying. As you keep reading through the Old Testament, you'll see time after time after time where the messianic line is threatened again, and you just read into that, the angelic conflict. It's just intensifying again because that's what God said would happen. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. God said the Messiah is going to come into this world and crush your head, Satan. Now you're going to be able to inflict some injury on the heel. I mean, if you had your choice, would you rather have your heel bruised or your head crushed? I think I'll take the heel because that's temporary damage. You're going to be able to exact some temporary damage but eventually he's going to be born and he's going to accomplish his mission through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and then one day the establishment of his kingdom, and your head is going to be crushed. You're going to be as dead as a doornail. And that's finally fulfilled in Revelation 20, verse 10, where Satan is thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. The conflict is now over. And now God is free to start afresh with the new heavens and new earth. This kind of thing becomes your commentary to understanding these kind of events all the way through Old Testament history, like Jacob himself, his life being threatened. So we have the discovery, we have a problem, and now Rebecca starts to give Jacob some instructions. Notice, if you will, verse 43. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise and flee to Haran, to my brother Laban. So when you look at the family tree here, coming from Noah, Shem, Terah, we know that Abraham has a brother named Nahor. And from Nahor... He has a wife named Milka. And from Nahor and Milka come at least eight people. One of them is named Bethuel. And according to Genesis 22 verse 23, Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. And they are living in a place called Haran. And Rebekah says to Jacob, get out of here. The land of Canaan, go up north to Haran until your brother's anger subsides. Where is Haran? It's that circle at the very top there. Ur in the east is where Abraham came from. The action that we're reading about here takes place in the land of Israel. Upon the border there, of the Mediterranean Sea. It's not called the land of Israel yet. It's called the land of Canaan. And basically what she's saying is you got to leave, you got to go up to Haran, to my family, and you've got to live there until your brother's anger subsides. By the way, the track from Canaan to Haran is 450 miles. Pre-helicopter, pre-airplane, And so that's quite a journey. By the way, that is where Rebecca met the servant of Abraham. Remember? Genesis 24. And he took her into the land of Canaan, and that's where she met Isaac, her husband. So, again, with all of these people and all of these places of geography, the Bible is narrating the story as if it actually transpired. I mean, I feel like I'm looking at Google Maps when I read all this stuff. And I make this point over and over again. I made it in Sunday school this morning because what people think is, well, the real history is being done in the public universities or in the public schools with the PhDs in history. You people, you're just doing religion. And yet the Bible doesn't read that way. It reads as a historically accurate Document Now, surely it's going beyond history and giving to us great morals and ethics and a knowledge of God, but this took place in a real historical context. Archaeologist after archaeologist has validated that and vindicated that. In fact, almost every dig you read about in the land of Israel unearths something that correlates with what the Bible says. And I'm not really here to pick on other religious groups, but think just for a minute about the Mormons, where Jesus made some kind of independent visit to North America, supposedly according to their religious system. And BYU, Brigham Young University, has one of the greatest archaeological departments in the world, and they can't find a shred of evidence or any visit by Jesus to North America. Paul said in the last days, be careful about muthos, or myths. Be careful about being sucked into things that cannot be factually corroborated. Not so with the Word of God. You're dealing with something that is extremely accurate from a Geographical, historical, archaeological level. One of the things that's very interesting to me is what Rebecca says here to Jacob. Stay with him a few days. Wrong. It's not going to be a few days. It's going to be 20 years. And in fact, if I'm understanding my Bible right, this is actually the last time that Rebecca is going to see Jacob because she's going to die before this 20-year period is over. This is the nature of sin. Sin will always keep you longer than you want to stay. It has a effect on us where we think we can do something and everything's going to be fine, but that's not how it works. It puts a chain on you. And I don't think the sin here was the fact that Jacob received the blessing. He was supposed to receive that, albeit Genesis 25, verse 23. The older will serve the younger. The sin here was deception. Not waiting on God. Not waiting upon God to fulfill his word. Taking matters into their own hands. And the moment that Rebekah and Jacob went down this road, they unleashed something That you can't close the door on once it's unleashed. It's called the consequences of sin. Galatians chapter 6 verses 7 through 9 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. There's a law in effect. I didn't make the law. God made the law. It's the law of sowing and reaping. The law is you put into the seed of the ground an apple seed, you're going to get what? An apple tree. It's almost like it's a neutral law because you can put good seed into the ground and get a great crop. You can put bad seed into the ground and get a bad crop. It just depends on what you sow. This is a law that applies to believers and unbelievers alike. I mean, we preach here eternal security, once saved, always saved. We think that's what the Bible teaches. But that does not mean that you cannot... Invoke into your life horrific consequences of a temporal nature when we go back to the sin nature and to the flesh and take matters into our own hands. It's like the habitual alcoholic that came to Christ, but he never got from that a new liver, a liver he had destroyed through excessive drinking. Yeah, he's going to have a resurrected body one day, praise the Lord. Yeah, he absent from the body to be present from the Lord. Yeah, but what about his circumstances now? They can't be altered unless God does a miracle, which he could. But typically those circumstances aren't altered because there's a law that's in effect called the law of sowing and reaping. I mean, if you want to test it out... Just um, drive home today at 85 miles an hour. And when the police officer pulls you over, say, well, gee, officer, Romans 8 verse 1 says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Because we all understand this law of sowing and reaping. It's, it's a law. It can't be altered. It's like gravity. And that's why there's all these stories in the Bible, accounts of history of people experiencing all kinds of problems that love god but they went back to the flesh stay with him a few days wrong it's going to be 20 years and you're never going to see jacob again you know you, you wonder if if rebecca had known that on the front end maybe she would have reversed course When she planned this whole conspiracy. You know the interesting thing about sin. Is Satan is so good at at what he does. We never get warned on the front end of the consequences. The consequences are usually the last thing on our minds. Genesis 3. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food. And pleasant to the eye. And desirable to make one wise. She took and ate of it and gave to her husband. And he ate also. See the whole focus there boy, this is really going to benefit me if I do this. I'm really going to get ahead if I do this. The consequence of death, which God told them would happen, I can almost guarantee you they weren't thinking about it all. That's why we need more teaching in the body of Christ about the temporary consequences of sin see the purpose that they're seeking to um, execute here verse 44b into verse 45 until your brother's fury subsides until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what you did to him then I will send and get you from there no you won't Consequences of sin. Then I will send and get you from there. Why should I bereaved of you both in one day? So just go until Esau's anger survives, and I will summon you. The truth of the matter is she never got the opportunity. Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his Genesis commentary writes Meanwhile, Rebecca's plan was, then I will send and fetch you from thence. I guess he's quoting the King James there. This is, this should, this she would never get to do. Because she would die before Jacob's return took place. Her fear was, now this is very interesting, why should I be bereaved of both of you in one day? Because if Jacob were murdered, Esau would have to be executed in accordance with the Noaic covenant. Do you remember the Noaic covenant? Right after the flood, God set up a covenant which is beneficial to the whole human race, trying to prevent humanity from devolving into the, the, the violence that swept the earth in the pre-flood world. After the flood was over and man's nature hadn't changed, God said in his covenant with Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God is God made man. All right, here it's going to be different. If murder takes place, there is going to be an execution from the government. That's your justification for capital punishment. I don't mean to get too far out on a limb here but I am very proud to be living in a state that takes capital punishment seriously. I'm proud of that because it's biblical. When someone commits murder and they're convicted by a jury of their peers beyond a reasonable doubt, God says, not Andy says, not the state of Texas says, God says they pay with their own life. Noahic covenant. Yeah, but can't you see a situation where someone on death row could become a Christian? Praise the Lord. Are they going to heaven? Yes, they are. But you can't undo the law of sowing and reaping. The temporary consequences of sin. The Noahic covenant, and we won't talk through this whole chart, by the way, there's part two there. That's too much information, right? TMI. But the bottom line is the Noahic covenant is completely different than the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. The Abrahamic covenants are, and Mosaic covenants are redemptive. Not so the Noahic covenant. It's there to impose order in a lawless society. It's there to restrain evil one of the great divine institutions that God has made and built into the fabric of fallen creation, allowing humanity to be perpetuated in spite of its sin. Why aren't you going to drive home today and walk into the nearest gas station, liquor store, and take what you want? I can guarantee you folks, it's not because I'm such a wonderful person. It's because I don't like the consequences. Don't do the, if you don't want to do the time, don't do the crime. And in a godless world, that is almost the only thing that will keep people back from committing mayhem against fellow human beings who are fellow image bearers. I think that's what Rebecca here is talking about when she says you know Jacob if you if you don't get out of here and Esau murders you then you'll be dead and he'll be dead because of the implementation of capital punishment so she's got to come up with an excuse to her husband hey, why is Jacob leaving? Why is he fleeing to Haran? So she tells him something that's true, but it's not completely true. She is on the precipice, verse 46, of deceiving Isaac a second time. But the excuse that she gives, boy, that sounds so spiritual. In fact, you could take the excuse that she gives in verse 46 and develop an amazing sermon around it about don't marry unbelievers, don't be unequally yoked. We've preached some of those sermons here. She she basically gives that as the reason, but it just wasn't true. You know, the thing that I love about the Bible is it takes everybody's skeletons Pulls them right out of the closet. That's why I'm really glad that I was not alive during Bible times. I'm sure there'd be a lot of my skeletons there on the front page to read. You know, this, these are examples of what we're not to do. These are examples of things that happened to us when we ignored the law of sowing and reaping and act like it didn't exist. These are examples of things that materialize in our lives where we don't wait upon God and we try to push things along. So the excuse there is in verse 46. Rebekah said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like these daughters from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? She is um, basically referring to marriages that Esau entered into going back to Genesis chapter 26, verses 34 and 35, how he did not marry someone up in Haran as Rebekah, being taken from Haran back to Canaan, met Isaac. He just married whoever he wanted, unequally yoked. He married Canaanites. And how that was very grievous, to Rebecca, And she uses that as an excuse as to why she's sending Jacob away. So it's a truth, but it's not a complete truth. It's a half truth. She's really sending him away because Esau is trying to kill Jake, Jacob. In other words, she is deceiving her husband. Rebecca is deceiving her husband, Isaac, a second time. Who are these uh, daughters of Heth? Well, that's a group of people that later became the Hittites. Speaking of archaeology, there's lots of Hittite tablets and those kind of things in that part of the land of Canaan that people study even to this day. Her reason was true, but it wasn't the main reason. She was sending Jacob away to save his life. Isn't it kind of interesting that when you get involved in deception and lying, you have to sort of tell a bigger whopper to cover up the initial whopper that you told. And the initial whopper didn't even seem like a whopper. It's just a little fudging of what's right. Well, now to cover up what you did, now you've got to tell a bigger lie. And it is interesting to discover that that people in politics, when they're caught lying, and there used to be a day where we used to impeach people for that, for you young people listening, that it isn't the first lie that gets you, it's the second one. It's not the initial lie, it's the cover-up. More people are caught with the cover-up than they are the initial lie. So... If you don't want to go down this road, the Bible is saying just be an honest person on the front end. You'll exempt yourself from the law of sowing and reaping. And you'll save yourself an awful lot of trouble. So Rebecca deceives her husband Isaac a second time. She is never going to see Jacob again. And what she thought would exist for a few days is going to turn into 20 years. Is there a lesson for us? By the way, God had already said the older shall serve the younger. She could have just waited on God and he would have fulfilled his word. But she got involved in the process in a sinful, deceptive way. And she's experiencing consequences. Is there an example for us in the year 2023? Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That's true. Once saved, always saved. But it doesn't mean if I, through volition as a Christian, go back to the sin nature, don't experience consequences. One of the accusations... That's raised against our camp constantly, the free grace, eternal security camp, is they say to us, well, if once saved, always saved, then what you're doing is you're giving people a license to sin up a storm. I mean, if you teach eternal security on Sunday, how do you think they're going to live Monday through Saturday? But the truth of the matter is, that's a distorted picture of what we're teaching. It's a distorted picture of what the Bible says. There are many, many consequences that we experience as Christians that are on our way to glory when we go back to the sin nature. We experience, and here's a short list, internal conviction by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. We experience divine discipline. Because whom the Lord loves, the Lord chastens. Hebrews twelve five through 11. You could experience premature death. There's, a, I've got them all in parenthesis, I don't know, three, four, five examples of that in Scripture. You could stand before the Lord at the bema seat judgment of Christ and receive no reward. In heaven unrewarded. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 15 you could experience moments in your life not where you're unsaved but you've lost fellowship with god it's like a, it's like a marriage my wife and i are legally married to death do us part that doesn't mean though that if i do something that offends her that somehow Fellowship between us is not broken. It's not a divorce. Now she might want to file for a divorce. But it's not a divorce legally. It's a momentary break in fellowship. The moment by moment enjoyment I have with her is fractured at that point. Until I confess. And there's restoration. A lot of people running around in Christianity that are positionally on their way to heaven and yet their prayer life is not what it once was. Their time in God's word is really not what it once was. I mean, why is it that God used to so intimately convey spiritual truth to you and yet that hasn't been happening in a long time? Could it be unconfessed sin? Excommunication becomes a problem. You run afoul of the law of sowing and reaping. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. How about this one? Unanswered prayer. David in Psalm 66, verse 18 says, If I harbor iniquity in my heart, heart issue, the Lord will not hear. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, paraphrasing a little bit, if a man mistreats his wife, and does not treat her as the joint heir of salvation, and is not sympathetic to the fact that she is a weaker vessel, and he just runs roughshod right over her. 1 Peter 3 verse 7 says your prayers are hindered at that point. How many prayers are hindered in the life of God's people because a man isn't acting like a man supposed to act within marriage? And if I were, I don't know, Calvinistic or Arminian, I would stand up here every week and say, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. Because Arminians say you lost salvation, Calvinists say you never had it or you wouldn't act that way. No, there's a middle, there's a middle road here. That's why there's so much lack of information in Christianity about the temporal consequences of sin. Because the preaching is either taken over by Calvinism or Arminianism. They make everything a salvation issue. Everything is not a salvation issue. There isn't even, I'm convinced, a salvation issue going on here with Jacob, Esau, and Rebekah. It's a temporal consequences issue. You can lose testimony like Lot lost testimony. Lot was saved, and yet he was sort of looked at as someone joking by his own family genesis 19 verse 14 when he started to finally speak about spiritual things and you can be disqualified from leadership 1st timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 13 these are all things that even a christian can experience by going back to the sin nature and so the conclusion of um, a very interesting narrative in scripture sort of ending with this plan to flee to Haran. We've seen the cause of the plan and uh, Rebecca's um, solution to the whole thing. And so we will pick it up next Lord's Day with a brand new chapter, believe it or not. Genesis chapter 28. And so I would encourage you to read that before next time. Speaking of the consequences of sin, there's one major consequence to sin. The biggest one. It's an eternity separated from God. In a place of conscious torment called hell. Jesus came into the world to fix that problem. It's a problem we all have. All of us are hurling towards that destination without Christ. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, in fulfillment of all of these prophecies that Satan is trying to stop, stepped out of eternity into time to bear in his own body the price for my sin and your sin. And if we will believe, which is another way of saying trust, in what he has done for us, then we're spared from that consequence. Consequences of sin can be very severe, but this one I'm describing is the most severe. And yet Jesus left his place of pre-incarnate glory as the eternally existent second member of the Trinity to fix this problem. I mean, it's obviously not a problem I can fix on my own. Because if we could fix this on our own, what Jesus did for us would be unneeded. He took a dramatic step and now he asks us, he commands us to receive what he has done for us as a free gift, as the Holy Spirit places men and women under conviction within the sound of my voice, in the building, listening or watching online, listening or watching on archive after the fact, our exhortation is to. Trust in the Messiah. It's not something that you have to raise a hand to do, join a church to do, give money to do. It's just a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where you hear the message of the gospel, you come under the persuasion of the Holy Spirit, and through volition you trust in Jesus by himself. And if it happens... Just with that one step, just like that, your whole position changes. You're now tied into what a lot of us like to call the grace package. Wonderful benefits that come into your life, not the least of which is you're on a fast track to glorification. No matter how sticky or difficult your life is now, you're fast-tracked into glory. In fact, your glory is so certain that God looks at it as if it already happened. Don't hold out for a better deal (laughs) because I don't think one is available. We Encourage people, even as I'm speaking, to trust in the Messiah. If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Lord, we're grateful for ancient history where so much of your word transpired and the lessons that it gives to us even in the 21st century. Help us to walk uh, these principles out this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said.